Hi, Jasmine Lopez here. If you like what you're hearing, you can donate to us by going to radioproject.org and click on the big donate button. And don't forget to rate us on iTunes, which helps other listeners find us. Thanks, and here's the show. This week on Making Contact. The emblematic case to come out of the FBI counterinsurgency campaign against the American Indian movement during the 70s is, of course, that of Leonard Peltier. The Counterintelligence Program, or COINTELPRO, was a secret FBI project to infiltrate and disrupt domestic organizations thought to be subversive. Between 1956 and 1971, the FBI conducted more than 2,000 COINTELPRO operations targeting black, brown, Asian, and indigenous movements for self-determination. I would suggest that anybody who is an active organizer in the community that's making social change would quickly become a target of the United States government. Over the next two weeks, we'll be broadcasting the documentary film COINTELPRO 101. Today, you'll hear the first half of the film, produced by the Freedom Archives. I'm Andrew Stelzer, and this is Making Contact, a program connecting people, vital ideas, and important information. In April 1971, a group of anti-war activists broke into an office building in Media, Pennsylvania. They were searching for records of the Selective Service System, the U.S. government agency in charge of drafting young men into the Army to fight in the Vietnam War. The activists planned to destroy any draft records they found. But the draft agency shared offices with the FBI, and accidentally, the activists discovered FBI files documenting many years of illegal war by the U.S. government against civil rights, anti-war, and other progressive movements. They had stumbled upon a highly secret official U.S. government program named the Counterintelligence Program, or COINTELPRO. They didn't destroy the files, but leaked them to the U.S. press, breaking open the shocking story of COINTELPRO. Back in the 1950s and the 1960s and the 1970s, the United States government had programs, some involving simple surveillance, some involving ways of getting information, some involving plots, now basically to frame people for crimes, and some involving outright murder. It was secret at the time because it was by and large illegal. Really what COINTELPRO is is, you know, a militarization of criminal justice. It was a code word that was used by the FBI's actual war against the entire left movement. To eliminate, intimidate, incarcerate, and terrorize a people. It was a covert war strategy, and it was done because the government thought there was a war going on. Not everybody's locked up. That you can jail a revolutionary, but you can't jail a revolution. In the 1950s, the U.S. government launched attacks against mass movements for social justice. Liz Darius. This program was called COINTELPRO. It was spearheaded by J. Edgar Hoover's FBI with the support of military and police agencies nationwide. 
The goal of COINTELPRO, without pretense of legality, was to destroy leaders and organizations, to sow division and distrust. Of course, repression against peoples of color, poor and working people, and progressive organizations in the U.S. goes back hundreds of years, beginning with genocide against Native Americans and African slavery, as well as a war of conquest against Mexico and the colonization of Puerto Rico. Earlier in the 20th century, anarchists and socialists were imprisoned and deported. Later, there was intense repression and infiltration against the Communist Party and progressive trade unions. As the civil rights movement brought millions of people into new social consciousness, COINTELPRO unleashed wider and more murderous onslaughts against the growing unity of movements for social change. You were carrying out what you thought was official governmental policy, were you not? Yes, sir. And you thought you were doing what the President of the United States wanted you to do. Despite congressional investigations, many of COINTELPRO's crimes are not fully known. Activists who experienced it firsthand hold important lessons for the present and future. Attorney Bob Doyle. COINTELPRO was most active at a time when peoples around the world were fighting against U.S. imperialism. You had the war in Vietnam. You had countries in Africa struggling against colonialism and demanding independence in Latin America as well. And then you also had, within the borders of this country, people of color also struggling against white supremacy and for empowerment in their own communities. COINTELPRO's attacks on left-wing organizations and against the civil rights and black liberation movements have received some attention, but it's less well known that one of COINTELPRO's first targets was the movement for Puerto Rican independence. In 1897, Puerto Rico was granted autonomy by the Spanish Empire, only to be invaded by the United States in 1898. Since then, Puerto Ricans have struggled against U.S. colonialism led by activists like Pedro Albizu Campos. By the mid-1950s, as movements for independence surged around the world, the Puerto Rican National Liberation Movement had reached a new and impressive strength. In 1950, the Nationalist Party attempted to assassinate President Harry Truman, and in 1954, four nationalists attacked the U.S. Congress. Jose Lopez, Puerto Rican Cultural Center. One of the first documents that the FBI issues, that J. Edgar Hoover issues, that constitutes what could be called a COINTELPRO document, was really issued against the Puerto Rican independence movement. In this uh, missive that J. Edgar Hoover sends out to the San Juan office is that everything has to be done, that you should gather all pertinent information, including personal information, on the independence leaders to expose them that would lead to divisions, that would lead to disruption and the destruction of the movement. In 1978, it's revealed that there are files on 165,000 adults in Puerto Rico. While in Puerto Rico, in order to get a job, you had to have a certificate of good conduct. 
who issued the certificate of God? The Puerto Rican police. But if you had a file, you didn't have a certificate of good conduct. What did, what did this mean? It meant that Puerto Ricans who were in any way associated with the Puerto Rican independence movement or were supportive of the Puerto Rican independence movement had a file on them, and it was very difficult for them to get jobs in Puerto Rico. It was all driven by the FBI, and it was part of the FBI's COINTELPRO program that these files were kept. Not only were files kept, but organizers and activists were targeted in other ways by the U.S. government. The COINTELPRO activities of police agencies led to the setup and murder of Puerto Rican independence fighters Carlos Soto Arivi and Arnaldo Dario Rosado in Cerro Maravilla in 1978. In the United States, the COINTELPRO program reacted to the growing organization and militants of the Puerto Rican community. An FBI informant in Chicago infiltrated an activist family, spread vicious rumors, and was responsible for the imprisonment of leaders. Lucy Rodriguez, Puerto Rican independence movement leader and former political prisoner. We had an FBI informant, Rafael Marrero, that um, married my sister. He was totally involved in the political work. He really knew how to do political work. And he wasn't lazy. But I remember talking to my sister about this because he never had a job, even though he did political work. My sister fed him, my sister clothed him, my sister was raising their daughter. The destructive personal and political betrayals of FBI infiltrator Moreiro took place at a time when both of his wife's sisters, there's, 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 Lucy there's, and Alicia Rodriguez, were political prisoners. He was just a leech, you know, and personally, and then a leech in the movement, and then he leaves, and then all these awful things that, that he did to, to, you know, against people that I knew were giving of their life and their essence to the struggle. A prominent activist in prison due to his actions was Jose Solis, a professor of education in Chicago who was charged in connection with an attempted bombing of a military recruiter that had in fact been set up by Marrero. Jose Lopez. That's what Rafael Marrero, who was the agent stationed here, was supposed to do. Actually did carry out a bombing and he tried to then put the blame on Puerto Rican activists and people who promoted Puerto Rican independence. Jose Solis spent many years in prison and, and his marriage broke up and his children suffered. The FBI takes no responsibility, yet in the case of Rafael Marrero, we know that he was paid several million dollars to carry out what he did. He was wine and dine in the best hotels. We, we had all the evidence that was revealed through the discovery documents of Jose Solis' case. And yet the FBI assumes no responsibility for that. The U.S. government continues to target the Puerto Rican independence movement and to imprison Puerto Rican activists. Bob Doyle. The FBI, in its own words, saw, saw a real threat in what I would term the efforts towards self-determination and community empowerment. 
and not only in the Black Panther Party, but certainly the Young Lords in the Puerto Rican movement and other organizations. The story of Native American resistance extends back more than 500 years. It's a struggle that has never ceased. In the 1960s, it underwent a resurgence highlighted by the occupations of Alcatraz Island in San Francisco Bay and of Wounded Knee and the Pine Ridge Reservation, one of the many areas where, in 1890, the U.S. Army committed genocide. There were numerous other demonstrations and occupations demanding sovereignty and upholding treaty rights. In the wake of the uprising at Wounded Knee, FBI and Bureau of Indian Affairs supported goon squads attacked people who fought for human rights and sovereignty. Many local Native activists were killed or imprisoned, and some leaders, such as Leonard Peltier of AIM, the American Indian Movement, were framed and to this day remain in prison. Ward Churchill, Native American activist and author. In the early 1970s, the American Indian Movement began asserting treaty rights within the rubric of national liberation movements to restore active sovereignty to Native nations. So you have basically the FBI, that is a law enforcement agency as it's chartered within the United States, fulfilling a counterinsurgency function on American Indian reservations, particularly the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation in South Dakota, but others as well, during the mid-1970s. Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, Native American activist and author. I was based here in San Francisco and on, on the AIM uh, Council for the San Francisco Bay Area. So we were getting reports from everywhere. You know, Pine Ridge was just one place we were dealing with after Wounded Knee. I think they cared more about the grassroots leaders getting rid of them than about the, you know, the national spokespeople. But these local leaders, incarcerating them and, you know, just, they were destroyed. They were destroyed by it. They created these, uh, what we would later learn from Central Americans were death squads to just kill leaders, to terrorize people break into houses and start shooting people, and just a free reign of weapons being provided, and especially ammunition, really armor-piercing, hollowed out, uh, you know, these kinds of things that are our military issue, being given to these guardians of the Oglala Nation. They call themselves the Goon Squad. Ward Churchill. The emblematic case to come out of the, uh, the FBI campaign, the counterinsurgency campaign against the American Indian movement during the 70s is, of course, that of Leonard Peltier. And that's an individual who was part of an armed security team on Pine Ridge that uh, was willing to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the FBI and its surrogates, the, the death squad surrogates that were mustered out of the Bureau of Indian Affairs police there in order to break the back of the movement, make an example of it as to the cost and consequence of actually trying to stand on your rights as an American Indian. Political prisoner Leonard Peltier. We started our own programs too, you know, the American Indian movement, we started, and but we patterned them after, after uh, the Black Panthers uh, organizations. We had free breakfasts, free, uh, we built schools, we have our own clinics. Uh, we went into, of course, communications. A lot of the things that the Panthers did, uh, we patterned our ideas off of. 
Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, Native American activist and author. The women from Pine Ridge begged the AIM people to send a sizable group of people who could be there to protect them in their, you know, these, these very isolated little compounds of, the, of these full-blood Indians, um, elder people. They were getting harassed all the time by the, the goons. And these two FBI agents drove right in at high speed, freaked everyone out. And so, you know, there was a firefight. And those two FBI agents ended up dead. Peltier was convicted of killing two FBI agents in a firefight in June of 75 on Pine Ridge. The upshot, however, is that there's no one, including even his prosecutors at trial, that have been able to say, or willing to say, at any point in the last 25 years, as it stands right now, that they actually know that he did what he was convicted of doing. In most cases, they're not even willing to say they believe he did what he was convicted of doing. Of course, a big movement built up, and Leonard has become not only a symbol, but a true spiritual leader, you know, of, of the whole movement. And AIM, you know, is weakened beyond really existing, but the American Indian movement, without the dots, you know, without the acronym, has uh, largely survived. What you can say is that Leonard Peltier is not serving time, although his sentence is two consecutive life terms in prison. He's not in prison at this point for anything resulting from a valid conviction. He is in prison as a symbol of the arbitrary ability of the federal government to visit these kinds of consequences on American Indians first and foremost, because that's what he represents, Indian resistance, pursuit of Indian rights, but more broadly, He's a symbol of the cost and consequence the government wants you to believe it can impose for your standing, no matter who you are, what group you represent. Attempting to stand in your rights can put you in a cage next to Leonard Peltier. Think about it. We'll be right back. You're listening to Making Contact, a production of the National Radio Project. To find out how to support us, download shows, or get our podcasts, go to radioproject.org. We now return to part one of the Freedom Archive's COINTELPRO 101. Liz Darius. Much of the Southwest, including Texas, California, Colorado, and other states, were part of Mexico until the Mexican-American War in the late 1840s, when the U.S. military stole the land from Mexico. This history of conquest, the idea of an occupied land, and a culture of resistance have played a central role in the ongoing struggles of Chicano-Mexicano people. In the 1960s, amidst demands in the farm worker fields for immigrant rights on campuses and in city barrios, the movement gathered strength and gave birth to dynamic leaders. Less well-known than some of the other crimes of COINTELPRO are those committed against the Chicano-Mexicano movements.
Ricardo Romero, Alfrente de Lucha. Quantel Pro probably just didn't hit us in Colorado. It hit us in Nuevo Mexico. It hit us in California. You know, the, the Mexican people have always resisted. There was a war, uh, it was an, uh, between unequals, and there was a conquest. And that's the root of the relations between the Mexican people in the United States and the federal government. Priscilla Falcon, professor of Hispanic studies at the University of Northern Colorado. I would suggest that anybody who is an active organizer in the community that's making social change would quickly become a target of the United States government. If you go into to New Mexico and you have uh, Linda Montoya at Escuela Aslan, an alternative school that's created, she's killed by the police in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And then you go into the assassination of Rito Canales and Antonio Cordova of the, the Black Berets that were set up by the police. And these guys were brittle. They were shot like 30-some times, you know, on the pretext that they were trying to steal dynamite. Widespread attacks on the Chicano movement in the Southwest continued. In 1974, in Boulder, Colorado, during an upsurge in the Chicano student movement, six young activists were killed in two separate car bombings. They are called Los Seis de Boulder and are honored to this day. Francisco Martinez, Chicano and Mexicano activist and attorney. We lost a lot of leadership and we lost a lot of potential. And beyond the individuals who died, the spirit kind of died there. Although COINTELPRO was a federal program, the FBI and other federal agencies worked in close coordination with local police and encouraged right-wing visual antis, launching joint attacks, infiltrations, and surveillance. One example of this use of right-wing groups is the assassination of Ricardo Falcón, a promising young Chicano leader who sought to build greater unity. Ricardo Romero. He could move the people in the prisons. He could move the people in the barrios, and he could move the students. So to me, he was a real example of what was coming. In 1972, a right-wing vigilante named Perry Brunson shot and killed 22-year-old Ricardo Falcone. Falcone was riding in a car with other activists to a Chicano political party convention in El Paso, Texas. When the car overheated, they stopped at a gas station in Oro Grande, New Mexico. The owner of the gas station comes out and he says to the group, you Chicano motherfuckers are all alike, and he walks back into the station. So Ricardo says to the group, I'm gonna go in and see what's going on with this guy and pay him for the, pay for the water. As he walks into the gas station, he opens the door, Perry Brunson's inside the counter, inside, inside and in front of him is a counter. And he reaches into the counter and pulls out a 38 and shoots Ricardo five times. And, uh, and so then Ricardo attempts to reach over and pull the gun from him. Uh, one of the gentlemen that's out in the car hears the gunshots. He runs in and he, he then tr wrestles Perry Brunson to the ground for the gun. Ricardo has turned around and walked out of the gas station and then collapses and he bleeds to death. 
the man who, who assassinated Ricardo Falcón was an organizer for the American Independent Party. In his gas station, the day of Ricardo Falcón's murder, he had a petition there for people who wanted to sign to have George Wallace's name put on the ballot in New Mexico in November of 1972. Brunson was acquitted by an all-white jury and never spent a day in jail. Supporters have attempted to obtain COINTELPRO documents about Ricardo Falcone. I think that the activities that Ricardo Falcone was involved in, the organizing of students in Boulder, the bringing of the community together, the empowering of people in northern Colorado, I think are, are, are some of the key factors that led to his assassination in Oro Grande. I participated in the trial, I saw some of the evidence, and I'm convinced that Ricardo Falcone, it was no inc coincidence that he, that he was killed in Oro Grande. Throughout all these years, I filed for his Freedom of Information files, and I have yet to receive one document from the government. They refused to release any of the records concerning his Freedom of Information file. Today, here we are looking at it uh, some 30 years ago, 35 years ago, 40 years ago almost. And some of these things say, oh my God, how can you believe that those things could have ever happened? Well, I'll tell you what, the federal government thought they could have happened because they wouldn't have done some of the things that they did. COINTELPRO targeted many movements and damaged people and organizations, from the Puerto Rican, Native American, and Chicano movements to the mostly white left, the huge anti-war movement, and student groups like Students for a Democratic Society. In many ways, these movements grew out of the energy and inspiration of the civil rights movement, first in the South and then throughout the country. It was the leaders of the civil rights and black liberation movements who J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI thought represented the greatest threat, had the most potential to bring unity to and transform the many movements into a force united and powerful enough to overthrow the established order. That was why COINTELPRO infamously included a list of black leaders to be neutralized. It was within this context that the assassinations of Malcolm X and then Martin Luther King Jr. took place. Massive rebellions took place in African-American communities in many cities. As repression intensified, a more militant black liberation movement emerged. Vicious tactics, trumped up charges, and calculated assassinations were unleashed against SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, against the Black Panther Party, and against RAM, the Revolutionary Action Movement. Mohammed Ahmad, Revolutionary Action Movement. Life magazine put out uh, in June, I think, of 1966, the plot to get Whitey. All right. And it, and it is stated that I was head of a thousand blood brothers across the country that was planning to wage guerrilla warfare. Akanyeli Umoja, professor of African-American studies at Georgia State University. Of course, the Black Liberation Movement is a priority at that time because the Black Liberation Movement and the quote-unquote Black Rebellion in the country at that time was uh, gaining some significant momentum. COINTELPRO was a governmental conspiracy to liquidate Muhammad Ahmad, the revolutionary leadership of Black America because 
we were impacting upon the whole country. And the leadership had to be liquidated, even up to Dr. King, because Dr. King had changed. People don't uh, talk about it in those terms right now. We kind of equate and collapse everything into civil rights. But there was um, a, a more militant movement, a movement that was reaching out to global politics in terms of anti-imperialism at that particular moment, and it had tremendous potential. Geronimo Pratt. The Black Panther Party was only a, little, a small manifestation of what this infrastructure wanted to do. I'm talking about SNCC came up with these brilliant ideas, you know, that had nothing to do with a Huey Newton or a Bobby Seale. We were organizing in the South, in the West, in the East, the symbol of the Panther from the Mississippi Freedom and Democratic Party, Fannie Lou Hamer, all these people I knew I'm growing up with and we see. And that's it for this edition of Making Contact. Tune in next week to hear the second half of COINTELPRO 101, a documentary film produced by the Freedom Archives. To hear a full-length version of the film or find out if it's being screened in your local community, go to our website, radioproject.org.